Now, as I mentioned earlier, it's the 1st of December and we're going to take a look at the annual arrival to our airwaves of the classic Christmas song. It's sort of accepted that if you write a successful Christmas song, you and your family are set up for life. Remember in the film about a boy, Hugh Grant's slacker character was living on inherited wealth from just such a Christmas song. And year in, year out, we hear that Naughty Holder and from Slade or Chris Rhea never have to work again because of their yearly royalty checks. Is it true, though? I'm joined this morning by entertainment journalist Dave Hanratty. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Hello, sir. How are you? You've been looking at some of the classics. You're going to give us an idea of what they are and if we can. Uh, but before we dive in, we have to uh, acknowledge the death of the great Shane McGowan. Yeah, you used the words cultural force there this morning in your intro, and that's a perfect way of putting it. And the tributes have been pouring in. I, I think of Michael D. Higgins and saying, quote, the genius of Shane's contribution includes the fact that his song is captured within them, as he would put it, the measure of our dreams. So many worlds particularly those of love, the emigrant experience and the face and the challenge of that experience will authenticity and courage. That's the kind of tribute that doesn't happen for just everybody. And I think as well, like, you know, it is kind of one of those situations where without saying hyperbolic, a nation is in mourning. We've lost yeah. a huge, a pivotal cultural figure. It is a desperately sad situation. You think of his loved ones, you think of his wife, Victoria, his former bandmates in the Pogues, his immediate family. But, you know, as a, as a wider Irish community, we have lost somebody. And in a year as well, where we also lost Christy Dignam and Sinead O'Connor, it's going to take a long time to kind of recover from this but at least there is a legacy to hold proudly aloft it, yeah it's Irish rocks uh, it's a horrible year for Irish rock really isn't it um, but Shane had become a kind of uh, a living legend in our, in our Irish folklore and he was he kind of transcended into an artist and a poet in a way but he was a punk wasn't he at his core he was a bit of both yeah I mean like I think he, he had a middle class upbringing which I think kind of shocks some he? people yeah like he, he went to a, a fee paying school which in fairness he was drummed out of he was expelled he clashed with authorities <laughs> which shouldn't yeah, <laughs> yeah he had that punk cred from a very very early age uh, it wasn't until he went to a clash gig in the 70s in the UK in which I think he was injured during the show and that was you know his response was I want a bit of this and really sh- sure enough the Pogues would come along and tear up the UK punk scene but he had that poetry in him it's in the lyrics it's in the delivery it's in the incredible way that he got in front of a microphone and did what he did I actually was walking down this morning and the the phrase measure of our dreams was in my head and it's just a beautiful use of language what does it mean? I think he was able to conjure up a different kind of world but also it's the bittersweet thing isn't it? It's the melancholic thing it's the glass half full and half empty I think it was a case of here was someone that we romanticised and valorised for a lifestyle that ultimately was of course quite harmful but he was out there kind of you know being strutting upon the stage being that player that none of us could be and it is it's a beautiful turn of phrase it's a very lyrical turn of phrase and it's one that's kind of in line with what he would do but I like the fact that Shane McGowan could do that he could conjure up these worlds and these words that none of us could but he would also just bring it back down to earth he was a very grounded figure as well It's it's a sad irony isn't it that when somebody passes we'd actually then do look at their body of work and stop looking at them and we in some ways we missed an opportunity to thank them much like Sinead I think we we all felt a sort of national guilt for not telling her how much we loved her when she was here Um, what's his legacy do you think? I think his legacy is that of a poet and of a punk and of a dreamer and of someone who genuinely hit the international stage in a way that few others did. I mean, you have to look at the celebrity, the legion of celebrity admirers. Bruce Springsteen has constantly talked about how much he loves Shane McGowan, how his music will be remembered 100 years from now, and it definitely will. There's a great Kiefer Sutherland story about the two of them getting into a fight but making up. And you know, What's that story? Essentially, they were out one night, they, they clashed, I think, over political beliefs. And in the end, I think Shane had to crash in his hotel room and they managed to make up along 
along the way. But Kiefer Sutherland said that when he came back, the bed was made beautifully like no one had ever made a bed before. And Shane had left him a, a handwritten note. And he said it was the most eloquent note I've ever seen in my entire life. And he has that note framed, which, of course, now will be a memento for the rest of time. His legacy is a genuine legacy. And like in a time when artists, you know, aren't maybe as iconic as they once were, we have this strange relationship. And it is, it is interesting that you mentioned that kind of thing of when someone passes away, their back catalogue or their films or whatever shoot up the charts, essentially, because we have that weird kind of innate curiosity. It's difficult to to thank Shane McGowan in person when he's here. You do remember him that way. He will be talked about forever. That's the legacy. That's amazing. And those words are beautiful. Thank you so much. Now, uh, we didn't know we'd ha- we would be talking about this today, obviously, um, and we had wanted to talk about... Uh, Christmas music. So we're going to talk about Christmas music and obviously we're going to end with Fairy Tale of New York because it is my favourite. I'm sure it's your favourite. It's going to be number one all around the world. But the phenomena of, you know, that I just played that Mariah ding, 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 ding. And you, you kind of, I get sort of, if I hear that too early, I'm not happy, right? And even there's the, there's the meme on TikTok now of people lip syncing. Oh, you guys. And it's Mariah and she breaks into the song. Let's, let's talk. Okay, so 1942, Bing Crosby records White Christmas, which is still one of the most iconic songs on earth, right? And, and then we have a list of songs and it becomes an after dinner sport of your favourite songs. But we don't officially know. I know Mariah has talked publicly about like she literally, her purse smiles when <laughs> they start to play All I Want for Christmas because the, the royalties people earn. What kind of royalties do people earn? Well, I should say that it's funny that you mentioned too early because too it's, early. Getting, it's getting earlier and earlier. And as a matter of fact, Christmas songs went to the charts this year, the earliest they ever have in mid-November. The first of November is Mariah Carey Day, the Queen of Christmas, as she calls herself. So, and of course, her All I Want for Christmas is You is one of the biggest earners. It's uh, There was research carried out. It's actually difficult to ascertain exactly how much money because uh, the Performing Rights Society, the PRS, essentially says, well, this isn't a matter of public record. We want to keep our members' earnings private when it comes to this thing. But there was independent research carried out by Channel 5, of all people, a few years ago. Um, top of the charts, top of the league table of Christmas money is Merry Xmas, everybody, because that is the official title by Slade, which is a judge to earn over 1.15 million euro per year. Let's take a clip. That's my childhood right there, isn't it? That's like everyone's everyone's childhood, yeah. And I think once it goes nostalgic, then it's hooked in, is it? This is the thing. I mean, we we might ask the question of why haven't we had a similar song in recent years to kind of match this. Why haven't we? I think it's tied into a time. I think it's seasonal. I think it's generational. I think that we grew up where a television or a radio was... Was all we had. It's all we had. And now we pass that down to our kids. And other people are just like, well, I can't compete with that possibly. Uh, it's, It's a dying art. And I think, you know, there is money to be made here, but it's kind of, it's kind of boxed off. Like, it's kind of like these classic songs just generate and regenerate and they're played all year round in some, you know, retail places where it's Christmas all year round. Nightmare, by the way. Or it's 1st November, it's Christmas time. Let's go with the classics. It's very, very hard to get into this crowded market. Very interesting. And of course, you hear people wanting the dream. So one that really stood out to me on the list in in the top turn of earnings is... um, is Eat 17, Stay Another Day, which isn't even a Christmas song, but it has snow in the videos and bells. Let's take a clip. (laughs) 
It's the bells that make it Christmassy, isn't it? The song Tony Mortimer actually wrote it about his brother Ollie, who died by suicide. Yeah, it's very poignant. It's not actually a Christmas song at all. But wow, I did not know that. <laughs> it was released in mid-November in uh, '94, and it was the UK number one that year. And we all remember that video, of course, as well. And as you say, yeah, bells in the video, snow in the video. That's the whole thing. That it makes a, apparently it makes a, about 112,000 euro per year. But it's it's a weird one. Like boy bands will always always have the poignant, heartbreaking ballad. This yeah. is theirs, and for some reason, uh, it's just it's Christmas, guys. We have to play it. But as you say, it's actually about a very tragic real life event and masterfully captured of all people by seventeen. It's actually it, once you hear it there again, it's one of those it's one of those guilty pleasures. It's actually kind of a good song as well, isn't it? There are no guilty pleasures, Brendan. Oh, I love that. I love that. There's no guilty pleasures. Now, the next one that I'm going to play is for me again. It, it feels like it's much older. It's from the eighties and it's Stop the Cavalry, Jonah Louis. Have a listen. <laughs> And maybe that line is something to do with being Irish abroad, is it? Wish I was home for Christmas. It's something, and it's from the 80s. Yeah. Something of an accident as well, yeah. Uh, Ruffy makes about 140 grand a year. John Louis has said that it's provided about half of his total income stream. Uh, it sold about three or four million copies, so I never had to get a proper job, he said. But it wasn't, again, Hugh it wasn't... Grant's ca- Hugh Grant's based on it. It's from about the First World War, actually. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't intended as a Christmas song. The Christmas line was kind of thrown in as an afterthought. And now, of course, we hear it every year at this time. Okay, Joe. So uh, this is not probably not going to surprise you, Dave, but this is my second favourite Christmas song. Um, and I remember exactly where I was the moment I heard it and wished I was in the van. It's Wham. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. Next day, you gave this is those vocals, George. So. For me, I thought this would be right at the top of the list, but it's not. It's number five. Yeah, mid-table. Yeah, about yeah. 300, 350 grand a year it's a judge to make as well. And like, again, George Michael, who unfortunately left us at Christmas several years back, an artist who I don't think was appreciated enough in his time. A genius, an eloquent, thoughtful man, an incredible person. And also, when it comes to Christmas songs, this is my number one. This Is Is it your number one? Yeah, the best Christmas song of Why all time. Why is that? Interesting. You're a I'm bit not, younger than me. so I'm like... I do associate it with a nostalgia for sure, but I think it's just brilliant. I, I think everything about it works. I think it actually transcends the Christmas season. I think it is the one Christmas song, in my opinion, you can play. Maybe Fairytale New York as well. But like you can play this any time of the year. It's beautifully put together. It's it's a beautiful sentiment and it just works. It just has that kind of infectious hook that gets you straight away. And the vocals are absolutely magnificent. And the video's pretty good. Pepsi and Shirley. That's what they were called, by the way. Iconic, as they say. Iconic. Yeah. Now, this is a song my dad used to play on Christmas morning um, and it would get us all going. I remember it on top of the pops and I remember it came around. And I think this is kind of the original song that kept coming back and it slayed. Merry Christmas, everybody. Let's take a clip. scream that it's Christmas like and they'd be like and that is am I right or am I just that is in my crazy brain that 
this was the first time a Christmas song started to come back as number one and it, people it became a Christmas song it kind of birthed that whole Christmas number one race because uh, it went to number one twice in two different decades Did 19, it? 1973 and 1989 yeah so like they they knew what they were on to here <laughs> and in fairness this is the kind of song where I wonder if there's anyone on this planet who hasn't heard it such is the level of its reach and the level of its money like I say this is top of the table this is the highest earning Christmas song that we are aware of and um, Naughty Holder has said before it is definitely a pension plan. It was never designed to be that way, but it took on a life of its own. It's been used for ads. It's been used in movies. It's been used in all sorts of things. It's relentless. There's also an incredible uh, deranged YouTube remix of this song where someone has taken the lyric, are you hanging up your stocking on your wall? And just plays that over and over and over again in the style of Naughty Holder. And the first time I heard that, I could not stop laughing. Is it funny? Oh, it's genius. Yeah, incredible. We've had lots of texts in here. Have you ever worked in retail? Christmas songs are a whole other thing. Head melted, that texter says. Fair enough. Listen yeah. to Christmas songs all day would, get, right. would get difficult, right? Another text. Hi, Brent. I can't understand why Coldplay never re-released Christmas Lights. Best Christmas song ever, in my opinion, says Sean. Would you agree? It's a good shout, yeah. I mean, like, again, this is the question of the market and how a lot of big bands have shied away from it in recent years. And if you look at the charts, it's not what you might think, especially in Ireland. I mean, oftentimes the Christmas number one is not a Christmas song at all. And in the UK, a novelty act has actually been dominating for the last five years, an act called Lad Baby, who was sitting out the race this year. So it's interesting. Yeah, the Coldplay thing, you feel like they could do it, no problem. But And like Christmas Lights is a good song, but for some reason, it's just kind of a weird B-side for them. A text here, Brendan, don't hate me for saying this, but the song from About a Boy, the Hugh Grant film, Santa's Super Sleigh, it was called, is really good. It's a great Christmas song. So hopeful. Wholesome. They don't want to leave their name, this text says, because his kids all, his or her, sorry, the kids, oh, the kids already think they're lame and that won't help. We're going to have a little blast of that song. Mum loves daddy and he loves her and I don't know who I prefer. I love them both and they both love me and that's how things should be. Look who's coming round the bend It's Santa oh, no. and his reindeer oh, friends Oh, that's enough of that now. Oh, gosh. No, no. Oh, hey, hey, I kind of remember that now. Make me want to watch that movie again, in fairness. Do you have a favourite Christmas movie? Oh God, uh, I, I don't want to be the guy who says Die Hard because that's the conversation that happens every single year but I Goodness do watch me. Die Hard every Goodness year because me. I'm a living cliche, what can I say? Goodness me. Now, um, of course, I want to really talk about everybody's favourite and it's going to be number one all across, across the world, Fairy Tale of New York. Tell me a bit about the background of that. So this is interesting because it's, it's hotly contested. It's disputed to this day that this may be an apocryphal story but we tend to print the legend because it's a good story. Supposedly, Elvis Costello dared... Shane McGowan to make a Christmas song saying, saying you couldn't you couldn't do it he was like you can do this you can do that but you couldn't do a Christmas song no I've never heard this fact again people say that it's not true people say it's a it's a glorious legend of the music industry but I think it's such a good story that we we want it to be true yeah and so a couple of years later basically Shane was like yeah you're on I'll try that and two years later out comes Fairytale New York and the rest is genuinely history a song that has like become such a strange part of our culture especially in recent years there's been a lot of controversy about it but I think that's going to be very much pushed to the side this year I the, don't like the forget the Christmas number one race this will be Christmas number one it should be Christmas number one to celebrate Shane and Kirsty McCall of course as well um, a song that people have really taken to their chests you know and like kind of like say that it's about flawed characters and it's interesting like I say that kind of modern conversation we've had about it but again you talk about staples you talk about being in the in the family home at Christmas and this just being on all the time yeah, it gives us a kind of a, especially, I, you know, I spent many Christmases abroad in London mostly. And that song gives us kind of an Irish ownership globally of Christmas in a way, isn't it? Of the disenfranchised, of living abroad, of 
ending up, you know, making a few mad mistakes or, you know, drinking too much, whatever it was. That song sort of embodied a youth about immigrants, I think. It is genuinely part of the culture, yeah. And I think I think that part of it is kind of overlooked. I think some people just reduce it to a squabbling couple. But as you say, there are layers to this. And like I say, you know, there are controversial layers to this. And I do think that people who've had problems with lyrics over the year have a valid argument to make. But of course, it's it's a bigger song than that. It is a, it's almost a stage play. Like It is almost like this incredible narrative that's weaved It's in. a fairy tale. It is a fairy tale. And like, it is interesting to see that kind of international travel it's had. And as you say, like it speaks to the Irish experience abroad. It speaks to deeply flawed people who love each other but can't quite make it work and lots of other things and people also just love the song they just love the arrangement they love hearing those first few notes and they love his voice Yes uh, I've loads of texts you're getting a great response Dave uh, Little Things by ABBA totally brilliant Christmas song but hugely overlooked says Frank do you know that song? Yeah ABBA are an interesting one because I think that we automatically just associate them with Christmas at times just due to the kind of the, the nature of the party Yeah and also like, like kind of the composition of some of their songs but yeah again not necessarily like, like they're, they're Eurovision act like, like that, that's who ABBA are they transcended that of course but they are a Eurovision act this is a song I don't know Mary Gautier Christmas in Paradise Barry and Castleknock that's a new one for me new one. Kate Bush's song Snowflake recorded with her son beautiful song definitely worth a listen says Eilish and Glass Nevin Kate Bush songs I don't know it Winter Song uh, uh, by Listen to Farna is the best and most underrated Christmas song Linda's Varn sorry I can't even read now sorry. Uh, and John Lewis at Christmas in London once I was in the shop in John Lewis and said to the woman at the desk what a relief it was to escape the music and she said it's a staff run cooperative and they all decided against it <laughs> <laughs> that's ironic John Lewis sided against Christmas songs another one Gilbert O'Sullivan I'm, I'm not dreaming of a white Christmas said Mick and Fingless I think Merry Christmas by Ed Sheeran and Elton John is one of the only newer Christmas songs as a contender for a Christmas classic such a heartwarming catching song oh what do you think of that song that was actually one of the only Irish one number ones in the last five years that is the Christmas song all the other ones were like Dermot Kennedy or various different uh, pop stars it's fine I thought it was a cash grab and actually John Lewis yeah I have that whole thing <laughs> this trend of the maudlin cover you know like the slowed down acoustic sad version of a popular song the John Lewis uh, ad has a lot to answer for you think of the Lily Allen one of the keen somewhere only we know the original is beautiful the cover is just ugh no. yeah I, I'm done with them as well now interesting you, you touched on why you know those iconic Christmas number ones may not happen but maybe because maybe they'll come back again but you're saying you have a theory right and it's to do X Factor and I love this go on yeah I think the X Factor has killed the Christmas song oh, <laughs> what an accusation uh, like X Factor doesn't have the clout it once had before a time it was kind of preordained that whoever would win the X Factor would get the Christmas number one in the UK I and, remember it so well forgot all about that yeah and it was also like it was either you get a modelling cover like I said before whether it's Alexander Burke doing Hallelujah Matt Cardle's rework of a Biffy Clyro song or you just get like some really bland original but it was just that was it it was, it was so up, they'll win the X Factor. They'll be they'll be Christmas number one. That's part of the marketing campaign. And I think that really warded a lot of people off, even just kind of getting into the ring, so to speak, on this one. Like, there's a lot of factors in play here. The dominance of the older songs that we're talking about that are just completely baked in. We our brain won't accept new information when it comes to Christmas songs. And also, the bottom has fallen out of the music industry in terms of money and streaming. But I do think that reality shows, especially the X Factor, uh, it just it wards off artists from really trying. You you still get like things happening. I mean, Villagers and Lisa Hannigan put out a cover of Little Drummer Boy just this week but I think X Factor yeah for, for its many crimes one of them is the uh, I guess the erasing of the great Christmas song the assassination of Christmas number one so maybe it'll make a, a comeback now but uh, that was a wonderful chat uh, Dave Hanratty thank you so much for coming in and I think where we started and where we should finish this conversation of course is with Fairy Tale of New York <laughs>